Hey guys, welcome back to the Always Love Podcast. Um, I just want to thank everyone for their support, their feedback and their messages regarding the first one. Um, a, a triggered one word for me and I, I have to be grateful. I'm grateful for friends, um, family and people that I've got in my life. So I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who's supported me so far. Um, you'll notice that I don't have an intro. Um, I'm working on it. I have no idea how to do an intro. If you know how to do one, um, let me know and we'll try and work something out. A um, few shout-outs um, for this week. First one, Manawatu Manu Jets um, just got pipped in the final uh, of their sales NBL uh, tournament. Uh, pretty good to see some basketball back on TV. Um, I'm not really, I guess, take it a year ago, um, and I wasn't really into into b-ball, but I'm, I'm right into it now. Shout-out to my brother-in-law, Tia, um, and his team, the Jets, and also shout-out to one of the one of the boys, Jackson Ferris, for making his NRL debut for Cronulla Sharks, and he snagged the meat pie too. He's always been a freak. Um, on this episode, obviously, I put up a few stories if you follow my Instagram um, regarding what you guys want to hear, and you guys came up with some pretty cool, some pretty cool topics and, and ideas that I'm pretty keen to cover, and I can see myself um, blabbing on about quite a few of them. We might have to even cut the potty in half and and, and give it two segments. I'm not too sure how how long a potty can go for before you have to, like the limit, before you, it has to cut off. Um, so I'll, I'll just give a quick summary of what I'm wanting to cover in this potty. So um, these long distance relationships, um, like I said in my story, I'm no relationship guru, um, but I'll, I'll give it my best. Uh, the mental transition from rugby to police, the current social issues, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, COVID laws, my story, a day in the life of a cop, advice for younger people or younger players wanting to go pro in the rugby scene, and my experience at Kings, the highs and the lows. So uh, there's, there's a lot of content there that we can cover and a lot of cool stories along the way, which I'm excited about. So so we'll get right into it. Actually, another thing that I wanted to say is that... Um, Looking, sorry, listening back on my third po- first podcast, I didn't realise how much I swore, and it's pretty yuck. Also, I don't like the sound of my voice. I don't know if any of you guys feel that same way. Like, if you hear your voice on a recording or something, you're like, ah, oh, right, my voice sounds like shit. I hate that. Um, but we'll get used to it anyway. So we'll go into the first one, um, long-distance relationship. So I guess for Laura and I, when, when her and I met, we were in our first year of uni, and Obviously, we're both real young. Um, we're, we're both pretty independent people, and we, we kind of enjoy our own space. So my living situation with rugby at the time, like six months I was in Hamilton, six months I was in Taranaki, and Laura studies in Auckland all year round, so it made it hard in terms of seeing each other, um, for sure. And obviously, we had different commitments at different times, and it just made it hard to, to see each other um, and hard, hard to function. It sounds cliche, but the, the best thing that I could put it down to would be communication, and it's it's so important. And if like you guys would know that the best the best way to get something off your chest is to talk about it to someone. And I guess communication in terms of how you're feeling, um, when's the next time we were going to see each other, that type of thing, that kind of caused us a lot of stress because we couldn't really plan in advance. And I was like, well, when am I going to see Laura? You know, when are we going to, um, essentially, where are we going to see each other again? And I think we went like six six weeks to two months 
without seeing each other at a point there and I know for some people that doesn't sound like much but for us it was and, and it is what and it was what it was so um, obviously we went through struggles in the early parts and even probably up until maybe eight nine months ago um, obviously as you do in, in every relationship you go through your struggles but another thing that I'd probably touch on regarding this topic is you got to be comfortable with who you are and un until you're comfortable with who you are in yourself you can't really branch out and help someone else and I felt comfortable and confident enough in myself that I was ready to not that Laura needed help but to assist her in whatever she wanted to do as well um, you can't you can't go fixing someone else's problems when you got your own you know that just sounds stupid to me so um, I guess you're not meant to place burdens on them although they're there if, if you want to talk to them um, but you're there to make them better and if I was to summarise it the best I'd say communication sacrifice and and just being honest um, you know sacrifice I just touched on it it's massive regarding long distance relationships and you've got to sacrifice time with your family and time with your friends because you've got to make the two days that suit each other's um, schedule fit and those are the two days that you're going to see each other for the next four weeks and it's a short time frame and you kind of want to spend as much time as you can with them um, the other thing is know what you want and I, I remember meeting Laura and I think like, we teared up another time to meet up as well. I'd met Laura three times and I took her home to my parents. So I, and, you know, like for me, being a young rugby boy in that type of scene, that's that's just unheard of. And, and I remember, um, I think I'd, I'd known her for like a month and I asked her out. So know what you want. And when you know what you want, everything seems a lot more clear. If you're not ready for it, you're not ready for it. But... Yeah, if I was to um, if I was to summarize it again, it would be being honest, communication, and making sacrifice. So the next segment on the Doctor Phil's um podcast, we're going to cover social issues, current social issues. So I'll admit this isn't something that I'm fully educated on, and I should be. Um, in the beginning, when like prior to Black Lives Matter, but COVID and stuff like that, when it first came out, I was pretty close-minded uh, when it came to this type of stuff. And Laura holds me pretty accountable um, for this, having to having to listen, and she'll question me about it, and she'll be like, oh, babe, watch this, da-da-da, and she'll go on for a spell for like seven or eight minutes, and I'll probably zone out for two or three of them, to be completely honest. Um, but it's important for me to know those things, especially with the role I'm in at the moment, and it's important to see where the world's going as well. So um, something that I've learned while being a cop is that there's always two sides to every story. Um, and I just think it's all about righteousness, say, eh? and always doing what's right, or there's always, because like, I mean, there's only one truth, if that makes sense. And if you think about it properly, there's only one truth. And I guess if you if you bring that to current social issues, um, I guess it, may, it hopefully it clarifies a few things with you. In terms of social issues, in my opinion, um, I couldn't really say or pinpoint a particular issue but one thing that I would comment on would be mental health in this in this area and it's a lot more common than what we think and 
I think it's real easy for someone to go to a dark space and no one knowing that they're there. And that brings me to, I guess, a crossroad where it's important to make sure that your friends and your family are all good. And I, I try and I try and tell my boys and my mates and my family that if they even need anything, they can always talk to me. That's cool. Um, and I think people need that sometimes, and they need to hear that when they're down. And and if and if you agree and and you feel the same way as me, I challenge you to go and do that right now. Pause this podcast, text someone, ring someone, tell them that you're there for them, you know, that shit, because, fuck, we don't do enough of that, man. And um, I think that's important. Um, next, we'll carry on. Um, the next one's Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter, I'm, I'm all for it. And if you know Laura, Laura's real into equality, and especially when it comes to Maldives. And... She, again, she holds me accountable for this type of thing as well. But I'm not too sure if you guys heard it, but LeBron, LeBron James, he said in his um, his post-match interview after playing their first game back in the COVID bubble, he said it's not a movement, it's a lifestyle. And just and this type of thing needs to be led by people like him. And imagine being directly affected by this day in, day out. Um, and I can say it because I'm privileged enough to not have really like of course I've experienced it because I'm mouldy and I'm fair skinned and that's part of life and it is what it is but imagine having or living in a situation in America where every day you're just absolute you're just getting you're pretty much the subject of racial slurs from everyone and imagine being degraded that much you'd feel like absolute shit and I'm not all about that. That's that shit. Um, racism, man. It's everywhere, and you can't deny it. If you do, you're oblivious. Um, people of people of color and of fair skin are some of the most beautiful people in the world, and that comes back to culture and religion and inspiration. And I guess with Maldives, we do that through songs and food and stuff like that. But you think about Fiji and Samoans. You think about um, the Cook Islands and. African Americans, um, South Africans, and the Aboriginals. I heard the Abor- Aboriginals used to take it real tough. Um, that brings me on to, I guess, another topic that I guess it, it kind of goes under this topic that we're talking about at the moment is colonization, and that's obviously a massive part of where we are in this current situation of life. Um, so colonization and apartheid and how that affects everyone um, and I totally understand and agree with that uh, and something that I've talked to some people about is obviously that was a long long time ago and why are we like yet yeah, we accept that that's why we're in this position what's not to stop us from having a mindset change and thinking how do we change it? How can I not be another statistic? And I guess what are we really doing to turn that around? And I've met so many people, and, and especially Maldives, while, while being a cop, um, who just hate police um, because of what they believe it stands for. And obviously you've got the law and you've got colonisation and you've got um, Europeans taking over the land. And, and, and another thing that I like to that I want to touch on here before we um, dive any deeper is 
I've not been fully educated in regards to colonisation. I have a fair understanding of what's happened and what's gone on, but if I'm missing anything, um, drop me a line. If you think I'm going overboard, drop me a line as well. All I'm doing is I'm just giving a broad perspective on things. So, so like I said, like Maldives convey a lot of hate when they see the uniform and when they see the cop cars. Um, I think there'd be a handful of times every day where I'd hear the word pig shit or um, FTP or, you know, like, like the standard type of thing. And there's just this massive hate in, in our people when it comes to anything that represents the white man and that's fine uh, that's how they genuinely feel that's how they've been brought up that's how they're engineered to think um, which in some in some cases is quite sad um, but here's the thing and here's here's something that I'd want to challenge and if you guys have an answer to it 100% um, let me know so why can't Māori stand up and change the status in society uh, and I'll give you an example. So, a lot of Maldives blame colonisation for where they are. And like I said before, what are we doing to change this? And I'll tell you that there's a, a particular group of Maldives at the moment who are actually changing the whole perspective of Maldi and the development of Maldi youth. And it's centred around... In my opinion, if you've not heard of them, um, you will soon. The Pewhairangi Whānau, um, Te Atakura, Apirana, um, Papatū, Whaia Irene and Te Aurere. Um, you probably know Te Aurere from, from TikTok and all of this Casper story. So if you don't know this family, um, they're making massive crossroads regarding the reo um, and just Māori te kanga in general. And... They're, in my opinion, they're changing the whole outlook on how Māoris can be successful. And, uh, like, they're getting into Māori TV, um, their whāna, um, like, their kids, their whole family and their kids, they speak um, Māori. And I'm pretty sure um, they didn't learn how to speak English until they were, like, year, I think year 9 or year 10, maybe. And, and they're doing unreal things um, I highly suggest you you get on that board and it's something that I'm wanting to do as well um, teach your kids about colonisation let them understand the situation that we're in and why we are here why we are but don't let that give you a reason to blame others because you have total control of your life and the, and the decisions you make and that's not going to help you, it's not going to help your family. So, COVID laws, so working through COVID was, um, was pretty interesting. Uh, we, it got to the stage where we, we had someone with a real high rank, I, I'd assumed, authorised powers for us to actually stop vehicles um, to see if they were abiding by the COVID guidelines. Um, and it wasn't until maybe through level three where they actually came into play um, we expected a, a spike in um, family harm episodes um, my personal take was is that we're a little bit we weren't as busy regarding family harm um, and I put that down to people being home people living in fear of who they're living with 
um, and them not wanting to call police. And if if you're ever in that position, or if you know someone who's in that position, um, and you trust police, I highly re- I highly recommend you call you call your local police station or you call one 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 if there's immediate concerns for safety. So um, not much I can really cover in terms of that topic, but we'll move on anyway. I feel like that's a lot about. Um, the world at the stage and I'm not quite um, savvy in terms of what's going on going to something that I'm pretty keen on talking about is the mental my mental transition from rugby to police and uh, to be completely honest this is pretty hard for me and I, I struggled a lot um, I owe a lot of credit to um, Laura and my family who kind of kept me above float for the good part of eight to nine months in between the interim of not playing footy, not getting a job, may I add, and then going to police college. There were a lot of ups and downs. Um, I guess some of the ups was I had a mental break from training every day and this really refreshed me. It refreshed my body, it refreshed my mind. I was excited to get back into the gym again. I could finally um, do exercises in the gym that I wanted to do. Um, not follow a not follow a routine, although the gym routines that I was into were, were really beneficial for me. Um, in terms of downs, there were a lot of mental barriers that I personally struggled with, um, and I'll dive a bit deeper into that as well. So, I guess again another thing that I really struggled with in terms of this transition was, um, like you go from being a kid's hero to signing autographs and taking photos with them and giving them free rugby balls and giving them your pair of boots and stuff and to absolutely no one and it wasn't a matter of being famous because I definitely wasn't famous but it's it's more of a matter of having a status that you can positively contribute to society and influence someone and um like for me especially my ego took a big hit going from a professional rugby player I was met like I'd only knew in (laughs) good England I only ever knew Sharan the rugby player and everyone around me only knew Sharan the rugby player not Sharan the what are you doing with your life why aren't you playing rugby type of thing and I felt like I had to live up to those expectations and I put that I put that stress on myself. Um, that was hard, and I was around All Blacks every day. And obviously, this is what I thought was my dream. Um, I was around them every day, and I guess I just wasn't happy. Um, after after applying for police college and having to obviously wait through the process, um, I'll I'll be completely honest. I was embarrassed to get a normal job. Um, because I didn't think that I would fit this whole, I guess, I was meant to be a rugby player, and that's all he knows and that's all he's done. Um, so didn't want to get a real job, profusely refused. Uh, Laura was on my back, you need to get a job, you need to get a job. I was like, I'm not built to make a job, you know, like, I'm a rugby player, and this is the mindset I was in. What a raggedy-ass attitude. Um, so, for, like I said before, Laura and my parents pretty much kept me afloat and for the good part of those eight to nine months they pretty much paid for everything and I was honest to God a sack of shit and um, 
in terms of money, oh, I hate asking for money. Um, if someone said, are you all good for money? I'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, and I'd have $3, you know, type of thing. So um, I stayed with Laura in Auckland for a bit. She was busting ass, going to uni, coming back. I'd just be like sitting on the couch, like, not even feeling sorry for myself, but just being an absolute sack, eh? Like, God, I'd be embarrassed if I just saw a photo of me sitting on that couch. I'd be so embarrassed. So I remember I worked like two days. <laughs> I worked two days with one of the boys, Liam. Shout out to Liam. Um, I'll hopefully get him on the podcast as well, but he used to work for, I can't even remember what the company's called anymore, but um, we're just doing real random shit, like cutting wood and then like making the shelf and shit, um, sweeping up all this all this wood and shit. It's, it sounds real stupid, but I, I literally worked two days and nine months um, and was pretty much on an eight, eight, eight and a half, nine month holiday and like you get good money at footy, but I blew it all. You know, like I was buying so much like food. I bought a PlayStation. I bought Beats headphones. You know, I was buying heaps of shit. I was buying stuff for Laura, buying stuff for me, um, and I came out. I came out with nothing but how to deal with your money better, I guess. Um, so that was a massive slap in the face. Um, I understood that. That was real life and if I didn't pull my head out my ass then I would have had to be someone that I didn't want to be and I guess that's that's the thing is that I'd not ever done that and I felt real in the unknown about it 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 definitely took its toll on our relationship as well Um, not because of the money but more so just the, the mental side of things and we both felt like we weren't moving forward, which was real frustrating for us at the time. Um, and I was real impatient. I really just, all I wanted to do was just get to police college. And like, I was so indulged in it. Like I'd see a police car go past and I'd rub a neck until like the police car would like turn away so I couldn't see it anymore. And I'd just be looking at this police car going, fuck, that's so cool. You know, I was just, I don't know, I was really out of it. And um and so I got to college within about nine months from applying. So I applied in October, and I think I was at college the first of or fifth of August or something. So that's actually quite that's quite quick, and and that's down to like where I got based, or posted, and stuff like that. So um, some people traditionally take I don't know between a year and a half, two years. And I remember one of my mates, um, he might be listening. Bramwell, Bramwell Eggley's um, up in Whangarei at the moment. He's one of my good mates that, that I met at, at Police College. We, we found that we had a lot of common. So he used to go to Kings as well. He was on a rugby scholarship. And um, I remember him telling me, I, I actually remember, so you have a poor footy when you get to Police College. Your first day you get poor footed into the college and the senior wing that's there who graduates in four weeks, they come to your thing and they graduate you, you oh, so they they pour for you on and all of this stuff and I remember um, I was just looking for all the black all the black boys in the poor and there's um, this big Cook Island boy Bob shout out to Bob and um, one of the other Samoan boys um, Pati Iki Roma he's I think he's in Avondale or Henderson and um, and then there was Bram and I did the oh what's up bro I did the I did the Maori um, I don't know just imagine you doing the old chip with the with the head lift I was like, oh, sup bro, I'm Sharon. He goes, oh, sup, I'm, I'm Graham. Ah, oh, 
Bran. And I, I started calling him Graham. I was like, I was like, this guy doesn't look like a Graham. And then he was like, oh no, my last name's Eggly. I was like, oh fuck, I know this guy. Because I used to watch him play, um, when I was a young buck, I used to watch him play Kings vs. Grammar. I've mentioned that game before. Real out of it, man. And him and I just hit it off. We started talking about Kings and all this other shit. And, um, anyway, shout out to Bram. I'll uh, hopefully get him on the potty if he doesn't. If he doesn't sack it. He's got a kid on the way as well. Um, so, congrats, brother. Anyway, before I started blabbing on about Bram, um, he was... We went to college in 2019. He was meant to be at college in like 2018, the start of 2018. But he was already going to college and then he played a game of rugby a week before going and he'd done his hammy and then it just totally put him out. So um, that's that's what can happen. And like, I, I was impatient for nine months and here I was probably one of the one of the faster applications to get to college. That's just ungrateful, way. Eh? That just screams selfishness I guess um, anyway so from that time which I'd finished playing rugby to going to police college that's where I, I started always loved and um, it was good to get my mind away from the stress of me being a sack of shit not doing anything um, but I learned a lot of things I learned to be grateful and um, I learned also not to take anything for granted and more so it just humbled me um, because you can being in that situation as a young kid, you can um, you can forget a lot of things, and and it kind of does get to your head as well. I can I can talk from experience. So um, yeah, to recap, I'd I'd gone straight from from school to a professional rugby environment, and it's all I knew. Um, and to just automatically leave that was real weird, um, and it took a hit on both me. And and, and on Laura. Um, next next segment of the of the potty. Um, advice for younger players wanting to go pro. So real good question and it's it's pretty simple um, and I wish I had this advice when I was going through is be confident um, not cocky and there's a real difference here so um, you can be confident in your abilities but you've got to be humble with it and I'll, I'll tell you a story so I remember being in um, in my second year of New Zealand 20s I sat down with one of the backs coaches and he goes oh hey how do you um, how do you like fullback and I said oh yeah I, I like fullback um, at the time I was a specialist first five and all I'd kind of trained for was first five and when you do that you kind of limit your options and I remember him telling me hey how do you like fullback and I thought to myself that's a pretty it's a pretty fucking weird question um, he knows I'm a first five I'm not a fullback for sure but I'll see where it goes anyway um, gone to the topic of obviously we're talking about um, getting into the World Cup squad and, and, and stuff like that so he yeah, he was like, so how do you feel about playing fullback? I said, I'd be keen. Um, although I didn't, there were there were a lot of, there were better fullbacks than me in that camp. Um, and I, and that, that's when I realised, and, and I remember saying to him, I guess that's a downfall in my game, is that I can't, I can only play 10, and 
um, if any injuries happen, I can only genuinely cover 10. Um, if I was to cover any other position, it would be a bit of a a bit of a write-off. And that's what I think is important for young players, is just always keep your, um, your skill set real broad and... Um, that would be some advice but the other advice that I would give them in that situation and I wish I did this um, and it's one of those things where you always think about I guess what you should have said after the fact so I wish I, I word for word I wish I, I wish I said to him I was like look I'd be sweet to play 15 but I'm the best first five in this camp and there's no reason why you shouldn't take me and that's the mindset that I wasn't in and I would never I would never back myself and that's what I mean by being confident so you've got to be confident in your ability but you can't be cocky with it because you just end up looking like a dick um, so yeah don't don't do what I did and base your career off one man's opinion and I think that's real important going forward. And and that's exactly what it is. Is one man's opinion governs whether you play 80 minutes, whether you sit on the bench for 70 and get 10 minutes, or whether you're not even in the 23 and you're on promos the whole day. Um, one man's personal opinion, oh sorry, one man's opinion governs that all for you. And that's like saying well, that's like walking past someone in the street, and they go, oh, "I don't like those shoes. Why are you wearing those for?" You don't go around and you, you don't you don't walk home, change your shoes, and then go back out on the street. You know, you do you, and it's the exact same exact same thing here. Is that um, you let someone else govern your career? You're done with. And I th this is what I learned um, is don't let one man's opinion govern your career. You steer the ship, um, and you do it. You do it yourself. The other thing is play for someone who wants you as a player, and who who can build the team around your skill set. That sounds a little bit selfish, but if you like, for example, if you're a ten, you want to be in the team who's got the best halfback because you're going to get the best ball. You're going to have the most time with the ball and make the best decisions. Um, you want a good twelve who's got a good a little bit of nouse on him and his top two inches are pretty sharp because he makes good decisions for you and he's your eyes when you're not when you're not looking as such you know you look at the little things like that get real detailed um, but play for someone who wants you as a player but more so as a person so pick the coach and I'm saying pick because at the end of the day you sign the dotted line um, so Pick the coach who cares about you as a person more so than the player. And the reason I say that is because if they don't care about you, they're going to shaft you. And if if there's any of my other rugby boys out there who have experienced the same, let me know. And I'd be keen to jump on a potty about it. Um, because I've been in teams with coaches that want me as a player. And that gives me so, that much more confidence. And I just end up playing way better. And I've been in teams that who, who don't necessarily want me as a player. And I was warming the pines or I was on promo or I was playing development, you know, and, and 
I knew I was good enough, but I was never one to put my hand up and be like, bro, what the fuck are you doing? Play me. I'm good enough. You know what I mean? So um, to summarise it, you need to be confident, not cocky. Um, don't let one man's opinion go in your career. Fuck that. Play for someone who wants you as a person and their team more so than a player, but also that wants you and their team as a player. Um, and be be picky. Um, do what's best for you. Um, and that brings me on to the next point. It's like American NFL. And if you haven't listened to my mate Carlos, his one throughout podcast, he's touched on it in regarding the um, American sports and how the whole mindset around it is so different. Like, I think, um, so like, say you read an, on, on the NZ Herald or something, Bowden Barrett signs, um, deal with the Blues for two years, gets $500,000 for two years. That's 250 k That's good money for rugby in New Zealand. Um, and any person would be like, oh, bro, that's fucking, that's fucking class. Like, shot, that's unreal. Bro, in America, some guys get paid I don't know, something stupid like 80 million for two seasons with 70% of that guaranteed and they're like, nah, that's bullshit. Give me more money, you know? That's that's the mindset and, and I, I'm not saying that's the way to go about it. I'm just saying you got to be smart with who you play for alongside being grateful for the opportunity. So um, that would be my advice for young players who want to go pro. Um, I hope that doesn't scare any of you, but I hope that gives you gives you com- uh, confidence. If you're a young player and you're kind of in the mix, but you're not, um, I might have a little bit of advice for you if you wanna if you wanna flick me a message, or I might know someone who's gone through a similar situation. So I know um, I, I mentioned it before, but Carlos Carlos has gone through a similar journey to me. Um, in my opinion, probably one of the best nines. Him and um, Xavier Rowe, and obviously there's Jay Renton as well. But um. Some of the best nines um, that I definitely played with anyway. So, Which brings me to the next topic of the difference between rugby in Auckland and Hamilton. So I played uh, school rugby in Auckland for three years uh, and then I played club rugby in Hamilton for two. Massive difference. Uh, massive difference in skill sets. I've obviously never played club rugby in Auckland but I'd imagine it would be quite physical as is all club games, um, but obviously you've got a lot more Polynesians and Maoris in Auckland, and they bring a physical challenge in themselves. Why could a club rugby is quite biased here, but probably the best competition I've ever seen. There's always a good match, and there's maybe five or six teams that are always gunning for top four, and it's a real hard competition to get into top four. So you've got your clubs like Hotapu, who's who's what I played for, Hamilton Old Boys, Marist, Fraser Tech. At the moment, Otorohanga are pretty good. They've got a lot of Fijians in their team, and their crowd's quite hostile. And then you've got Malville as well, who are also um, pretty good. They've got some good players. And the cool thing about Waikato Club Rugby is that a lot of their Mitre 10 players play every single week, week in, week out, for their club teams. And that's what I think makes it so strong, is that there's no one team, well, I guess Hotapu could, could be one, but there's no one team that's got all Mitre 10 boys in one team, and then the rest are just average. They're all scattered across different clubs, and club rugby is so strong, and the rivalries are real strong as well. And I think, I'm not too sure 
what it's called. I think they call it the Stag Trophy, and it's only for club teams in Hamilton, and you get to hold the Stag if you're a team, a club rugby team that plays in Hamilton, um, and you play another city team. Uh, so it's only amongst cities, and it's massive, massive occasion, and. The crowds are massive at, at Waikato Club Rugby, and um, it's just a real cool vibe. You've got good after matches, uh, you've got real good sportsmanship, um, and the other thing is when the Chiefs boys, who don't necessarily make the 23 and they need a little bit of game time, they always come back and they play for clubs, and they're all again, they're all scattered across different clubs, so just getting to top four is quite hard, and you, it's no surprise if you have three or four tough games in a row and momentum early on in the season is real big you've also got the likes of varsity who are pretty competitive as well so in my opinion again i don't have much experience with club rugby in auckland but in my opinion the level of rugby for club rugby in general in waikato is quite quite clinical and it's uh, there's actually some real good players who don't quite make them out of 10 but are still really good players, and you have old dogs as well who play a lot. I think there's uh, when I played Melville at Melville one time, there was a few boys who knocked up 150 games, um, and 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 that's I think there was a boy who oh not a boy he's a, he's a massive guy, a guy who played for Fraser Tech he just knocked up 200 games a couple of weekends ago. So at the end of the day, like all footy games, you're all mates with those boys off the field, but it just brings a whole lot of banter, and it's real good. Uh, you get to play with your mates every week, and so I play for Hotapu, which is 20 minutes out of Hamilton in Cambridge. And shit, we had a good team. And we had, I remember my first year, we had, so our front row was Ryan Coxon. We had Bradley Slater. Um, we had Ollie Norris. We had Sam Kidd, Logan McConnell, Mitch Luke Jacobson. Um, then we had, there was me, Toddy Doolin, Sheldon Torvior. Uh, the next year after that, we had Dylan Tycott or Simpson, and we had so many guns. And we had Toto Carpia, um, Tom Florence, like we're absolutely stacked. And we had heaps of New Zealand 20s players. There was a couple of years there where the only players that were in the New Zealand 20s um, out of all clubs in Hamilton were coming out of Hotapu. And the year they won it was the year I, <laughs> the year I left. So I guess they fixed the problem, kicking me out. So no, they didn't kick me out. I um I left. So. Yeah, I guess the main difference is Auckland footy is a lot more physical. Don't get me wrong, Waikato Club Rugby is physical, but a lot of them are quite more direct and it's more rip, shit and bust. Um, whereas, I, I, in my opinion, I think Waikato is a little bit more skillful. So uh, that'll bring me on to our next topic was my experience at King's. So I was lucky enough to get a, a rugby scholarship to King's um, years 11 to 13. Uh, 2014, 2015, and a completely different world, and it was it was it was a world within within its own gates. And if you don't know geographically about Kings, it's smack bang in the middle of South Auckland in Otahu. So you've got Kings, this massive, massive school um, with a lot of money, and then it's divided and separated by a fence which backs onto Otahu College and it just screams out privilege and if you think of big picture as I mentioned before colonization like it's it's um it, it's different it, I'll tell you a quick story so 
I think I was I was 15 and I was due to start Kings. Uh, I was due to go up to Kings um, to start schooling. And a week beforehand, I was on the I was on the, um, the farm with one of my mates, and we're just we're just mucking around and whatnot, and we're um, walking across this log on the farm, and I decided to oh, underneath the log was. Uh, it was ash, it was hot ash, but it looked like sawdust. And I was like, oh, sweet, I'll, I'll jump off. And I jumped that deep into it that it went, like my my whole gumboot was in the ash and it got inside my gumboot and burnt through the top of my sock and I had scars and stuff all over my, over the top of my feet. And I was on, I was on crutches for maybe two months maybe and I'd like, and oh, so my, my first two months at, at King's, I was roaming around school on crutches and stuff, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Like, the school's massive. All my classes are on the top floor. There's, like, two or three levels, and I was wearing jandals and breaking school code and stuff. Like, I remember, I think, one lady at the... They have a med centre there, so 24-hour... Um, they have a nurse full-time there if any of the kids at boarding school, like, they feel sick or something, they can go to the med centre. Anyway, I went there to get dressings changed and stuff like that, and the very first time I was there, they were like, oh, you might need a wheelchair, and I just thought to myself, I'm not roaming around this massive school in a wheelchair for my first two months. That would have to be the most embarrassing thing ever. So I, I, I refused till the cows came home, and I ended up uh, getting a pair of a pair of crutches. And I felt shit because the first two months I did no training because I, I couldn't do anything. And then I was there for rugby, you know, and as soon as I got there, I wanted to prove to the boys that as you do in any new environment, you want to impress them and you want to make sure that you gain their respect before you go any further. And the first two months, I was just a sack of shit rolling around on crutches. So I eventually, I eventually got myself right. And my first training back, it was a Monday morning. It was cold. Um, we were on the backfield and we had this fitness session. And I think I started it. I think ten minutes later, I was well, I nearly fainted. We it was probably the hardest training session I've ever done. And we had to start on our stomach and go the full length of the rugby field. And you had to start on your stomach, get up, and you had to tackle this tackle back. And the bro had to go one hundred percent. So you were you were smashed. You absolutely had it. And I think. If you're going 85, 90% coach, you'd be like, no, you've got to go back to the start. And I think we got maybe to the far 22, maybe a little bit more. And it was like, no, nah, go back to the start. You guys aren't going hard enough. And um, so, we, so we did that and we did it again. And by the 22, I was done. Anyway, we ended up finishing it and I could barely feel my legs. I'd never, like my body had never felt so fatigued in my whole entire life because it just went from one extreme to the other, and I, the whole day I was still recovering, like, I was late to class, because I was wobbling my legs, like, it was just ridiculous, and I still talk to one of the boys about it to this day, that that was one of the hardest training sessions I've ever done. A couple of years went on, and uh, learned a lot, completely different world to what I was used to, and I, I fully bought into it, I bought into the the boarding house, I loved the boys I was living with, I bought into the rivalry of the house. So at Kings, you have uh, house into house composition of competitions, and you have competitions for everything. So you have into house chess, table tennis, debating, rugby, touch, volleyball, basketball, netball, anything you can think of. They almost have an into house competition, and they have a trophy for each thing. And the more you win, they have an overall 
um, best house of the year and you have um, they have small house music and big house music so small house music is you have a select few of each people in your house um, who are musically talented so and you'd have to with without any teacher or um, tutor mentor advice or input you had to pick a song you had to choreograph it you had to get uniforms outfits and you had to sing the song and like you'd have like maybe five or six people per house and I guess you'd have in the boarding houses 70 or 80 boys per house or girls and then you'd have each house would do their thing in front of the whole school it was like a thing they'd cut school short at like midday and then you'd all go into the school hall and you'd all have to like um those people in your house would get up and they'd have to do the song and there's actually some real some real good um some real good talents and stuff like that on the show so that was small house music that contributes to the overall the overall competition towards the end of the year and then you have big house music so you pretty much do the same thing but everyone in your house so it's obviously a lot a lot less structured um, and the boys just go hard and it's one of the best competitions ever and that we go to Victor Arena and you do it in front of all your parents and all your family and it was ridiculous. It was so cool, man. We did three. I did it three times, and some of the best memories. So so cool. And like, like Victor Arena's packed out, and you do like chants and stuff. And so at Kings, you have um, you have two girls' houses, and then I think you have you have seven or eight, maybe nine boy houses, and I think four or five of those are boarding, and the rest of the day boy houses. And obviously with the day boy houses, you've got a lot more boys in them. But the, the whole structure of Kings and like all of that stuff I bought into, the inter-house challenges and stuff. So I remember before I even went to Kings, and I think I mentioned it in my first podcast, is I'd never been on a plane before. I'd never been on a train. I went from a town in South Taranaki where if you drive past it, you blink and you miss it. And, and then going up to Auckland, it was just a completely different lifestyle and... Being a, a Māori boy from a small rural town, going to Kings, which is a a, a white institution, I loved it, man. Oh, I'm not going to lie, I absolutely loved it, and I bought into it straight away. Uh, all the extracurricular things I bought into as well. We had a, our, our first 15, the, the three years that I was there, it was real good, and I enjoyed my footy there. I feel like I wasn't the same player that I was when, when I arrived, and I think that was more... A mental barrier in myself that I led myself to believe that I wasn't good enough and I placed a lot of expectations on myself to perform because I felt like I owed it to the school because they'd given me an opportunity and so nonetheless we we made we didn't make semis my first year we made semis my second year and we lost to grammar at grammar and then my third year we missed out on semis again and I think my last year was the best team we'd ever had. And if you looked at our back line in general on paper, despite us having a real good forward pack as well, our back line on paper would have been probably the best back line in schoolboy footy in the whole country. And they were the likes of um, James Stannis was at nine, I was at 10. We had Liam Baker-Smith on the left wing. He, he, was, he was pretty good at the time. Ed Vaiamulitalo, he was uh, Junior Warriors. Um, we had Balen Sullivan, Jamie Spolwart. We had Lucas Halls. We had heaps of boys that were so talented, and we just we just couldn't we just couldn't get the results that we were wanting. Uh, but in our last year, we beat Grammar, and that was probably one of the best memories that I've got from that school.
I remember the first the first weekend, while I was still injured, the first weekend I was at King's, we had a weekend where all the boarders had to stay in the boarding house. And it was essentially, it was just to get to know everyone and stuff like that. And coming from Tutal, I would sing Māori songs and would do a little bit of, not really, it's not really kapaka, but you'd do something similar. And I was really into that down there. And then I remember the seniors going, oh, come out onto the forecourt, boys, we're going to learn the school song. And I was like, oh, sweet, this will be good. And then it was all in Latin, and I'd never heard Latin before, and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? And it's it's, it's a cool song, and I still remember, I still remember it. Um, so to touch on it more specifically, the highs and the lows of Kings, the highs would have to be the success we had as a footy team and the enjoyment, the people I met, it's a it's a cool environment and if if you're there and you're amongst the, the culture and the environment and you're buying to it, you, you really you really learn a lot and you remember a lot and you're grateful for those memories. I, there's there's obviously a few lows as well, so obviously um, I'll tell you a story. In my second year there we were doing we used to call them top ups, but we used to um, do a little bit of conditioning, like running after training and one afternoon, there was me, um, our, one of our hookers, Grayson Hardy, and our winger, Liam Baker-Smith, and we were all quite tight at the time. And like We'd do our 100-metre sprint, and then we'd joke around for a bit, and I think one of us said something, and and, um, and, and we all started laughing in between, in between our reps, and our coach put... Um, he blew the whistle, and he was like, oh, shit, and he's like, what the fuck are you laughing at? What's so funny? Be serious about it, and then I got I got told to um to go back to the boarding house, um, so I got kicked out of training, and then I think one of the one other I think it might have been Gray or it might have been Liam I'm not too sure, um one of them got kicked out of training, so he had to go back to the boarding house as well. Oh, oh I felt so wretched. I was just having a having a little laugh, and anyway, I had a chat with the coach later on, and um, so he dropped me for two two weeks, and. We played uh, Odahu and I think maybe might have been St. Peter's maybe. And um, uh, yeah, so he, he dropped me for two games um, for that. And I had to, I ended up playing for second 15. And I guess, I guess it was just more of, a, it was more of a reality check for me. And one of the biggest things I learned was not to take... Uh, that position that I had for granted because I was at the time I was the starting first five and um, that was the biggest thing that I learned was not taking things for granted in your position and obviously you've you've got a job to do and if if you're taking the piss at training then then that's obviously not the right place so amazing amazing opportunity and something that I'll cherish forever I enjoyed going back I've, I've been back once and that was last year but uh, this is this podcast is I started it a few days ago, but today's Tuesday, the fourth of August, and I think Kings play Grammar at Kings uh, this coming Saturday. So I've let, um I plan to link up with a few of the Kings boys, and uh, we'll go along to the to the match. When I was um, in my last year there, I had what's called a mentee. It's kind of like big brother, little brother. And so when I was in my last year, um, Max's name was Max Webb. He was in his first year, and I pretty much so all of us who are year thirteen, we had. We were assigned someone, and we got to choose, and I chose Max. He was, so the name of my boarding house was St. John's, and he was fourth generation St. John's, so 
his dad, his uncle, his granddad, and his grand and his great granddad were all at Kings, and they all went through St John's. Um, so I, I pretty much not looked after him, but you know, like I'd see him through school and whatever, catch up, and I'd go and buy him slushies and shit from the canteen and stuff. I don't know, just just things that you you do to try and try and make their first year at high school a little bit better. So uh, he's he's playing. Um, Ironically, he's playing. I think he's playing first five uh, for Kings against Grammar, um, and it's his last year of school now as well. So, um, shout out to to Max if he's if he's listening. But look forward to catching up with him. Kings versus Grammar week's massive at school. Eh? They they call it Grammar Week, and all the way from Monday through to Friday, especially if you're playing at home, there's obviously the games on Sky Sport Telly, like Land Rover first fifteen rugby. So. Like they paint the field, they cut it properly, they have they put up extra grandstands and it's just a vibe. The whole Wednesday assemblies, not all of it, but it's dedicated to grammar. Like they'll have these two massive big screens in, in the hall and they'd have to explain to all the students if and when they come to the game, this is where you sit. They go to Burger King and they get all of these crowns and stuff and like they support and they they chuck them on their head. It's just a vibe, man, and it's so cool. Um, and the chants are massive and I still remember in, my, in, in our last year we were up by I can't remember what we were up by and um, there was, there was a, f- a couple of minutes to go and I think Grandma had the ball about the halfway line and AJ Moore he, he made a tackle and um, the Grandma guy the ball went back and Jay picked it up and he just sprinted 50 metres into this massive dive and the whole school was just absolutely going wild and I just remember him going there and just thinking, fuck, we've won it, that's it. And just seeing this hauling ass to this trial line, fuck, it was such a memory, man. And I still watch that video back and, and see that. It just gives me goosebumps, that type of thing. So all the best to the Kings boys this, this week if, if, um, if they're listening. I'll definitely be there. Here's the thing, though. Since I left school, I've not, I've not been to a Grimmer game since because I've ordinarily been playing rugby myself on a Saturday. But... Uh, this week falls into my days off and uh, it's definitely not a game that I want to miss so I'm looking forward to that. I know I didn't cover a few a few topics that were on the story. Uh, I feel like I've blabbered on enough um, on this podcast but I've been pretty keen to touch on my story a little bit more in depth and obviously day in the life of a cop that might be its own, its own podcast so uh, I appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for all the feedback. If you have any ideas for me, if you want to see any collabs or anything like that, let me know as well. But um, yeah, thank you for the support and we'll see you next time.